Good to go, Greg. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Sunday School. Good to see you. We're continuing our study through the book of Exodus, working our way through the scriptures. Last week, we looked at the final of the 10 plagues that God sent against Egypt. And we also looked at the inauguration of the Passover celebration. But now, though all the plagues are accomplished on Egypt, God is not yet done with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has let Israel go, but Pharaoh and the Egyptians as a whole still have an important role to play in bringing God glory and in testing the faith of the people of Israel. And what we're talking about today is what happens next in the marvelous deliverance at the Red Sea. Now you may notice a little asterisk on the title. That's because, as we'll talk about later, there is a bit of an interpretation question as to whether this passage is really talking about the Red Sea as we call it today. Now, we'll come back to that question, but this is another of the more well-known events of the Bible, or at least more frequently depicted events of the Bible, which means you will need to pay extra close attention because we want to make sure that we're understanding what the Bible actually says rather than what we've seen in movies or cartoons. Why did God lead Israel and Egypt to this confrontation by the sea? How did God bring about deliverance? And what is the significance of those events for us today? That's what we want to find out. And let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord God, I pray that we would see more of you this morning, that we would behold you in all your power and goodness, mighty to save, but mighty to judge. God, I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by returning to where we left off last time in the Exodus. So please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, page 69, if you're using the Pew Bible. At this point, Pharaoh and his people have just told the Israelites and or they've just told the Israelites to leave Egypt quickly. Israelites have requested and have been granted various treasures from their Egyptian neighbors. So weighed down with plunder, so to speak, the nation now actually departs from Egypt. Look at Exodus 12 verses 37 to 41. I'm going to start with a kind of short section here. Exodus 12, verses 37 to 41. Here's what it says. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord, that is of Yahweh, went out from the land of Egypt. All right, this is a, this is an, a very important moment in the history of Israel. Let's make some observations on the text. Notice in verse 37, the first part of their journey is from Ramses to Succoth. So Ramses would have been in the land of Goshen, just southeast of the Nile Delta in Egypt. And there have been various sites today proposed for Succoth, but 
probably it was southeast of Ramses. So Israel is proceeding in a southeasterly direction. Notice how many are said to travel. The specific detail in verse 37 is 600,000 men. Now, the people of Israel often took numbers in terms of men only. And we see this even in the Gospels, right? When Jesus feeds the 5,000, it is 5,000 men. Now, there were others there, but it was only the men who were counted. Now, this doesn't mean that only men were important in that society. Children and women were not important. It doesn't mean that. It's just the way that Hebrews numbered things. Number of men would be significant, though, for certain aspects of a nation's well-being, like having fighting men for battles. So that would be an important reason to have the number. But from the number of men given in the different passages, we can estimate the total number of people as a whole. And so when we see 600,000 men traveling out of Egypt, what that means as a whole is probably one and a half to two million people. If you just infer, estimate the number of children and women that would be attached to those men, we're probably talking close to two million people leaving Egypt. Now, if that sounds like a lot of people, it's because it is. And remember how many people came down to Egypt. How many people came to Egypt with Jacob? 70 persons, about 70 persons. But now we have 2 million. And how long did it take to multiply to such a great people? Notice verses 40 and 41, they tell us it was exactly 430 years. So in 430 years, God caused 70 people to become 2 million. Now, has God not kept his promise to multiply the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? In fact, if you just turn back to Genesis 15 for a moment, take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis 15, you'll see that a number of the promises that God gave to Abraham are all being fulfilled or have been fulfilled by the time we get to Exodus 12. So Genesis 15, I just want to highlight a few verses for you there again. Look at Genesis 15, 5. God says, Now, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then jump down to verses 13 and 14. It says, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed. 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And isn't this exactly what we've seen in the book of Exodus? And yet this was pronounced hundreds of years before. And if God has brought these promises to pass, well then surely one of the promises we've not yet seen come to pass will also be fulfilled. Look at Genesis 15, 7. Verse 7. God says to Abraham, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Now he was talking about the land of Canaan, but Abraham had not received the land of Canaan as a possession. He was a sojourner, but his descendants would receive it. And in a sense, through them, Abraham would receive it. And that's coming. That's coming for the people of God. 
So you see that what's happened at the end of Exodus 12 is just the start of a bountiful outpouring from God towards his people. God has provided wonderfully for the people of Israel as they leave Egypt, but he's going to continue to do this. And not only when he provides miraculously for them as they journey through the wilderness, but also when they arrive to Canaan, God will give the people of Israel cities and farms and vineyards that they did not buy and they did not build. God is going to give all of Canaan to Israel. And not just an empty land, but a, a land filled with various cities and farms and things like that. This is part of God's gracious provision for Israel. Now, turn back to Exodus 12. I want you to notice one other detail in verses 37 to 41. Notice in Exodus 12, verse 38, it refers to a mixed multitude. It says a mixed multitude also went up with them. What is this referring to? This would have to mean that some non-Hebrews went up with the people of Israel. This would refer to other Semites, other people who were descended from Abraham or other people from his clan. But it may also refer, probably also refers to some Egyptians and non-Semitic peoples. They, these people, they witnessed the power of God. They heard about the power of God displayed in Egypt and they want to go with Israel. So they do. So part of this two million is this mixed multitude. Now, some of these non-Israelites, they're going to cause trouble later on. And we'll see that later. But in summary, around 1445 BC, I think that's a good date for the Exodus. Have about 2 million men, 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 women, and children, Hebrews and non-Hebrews, coming up with abundant livestock and treasure and leaving Egypt. Now, with these observations on this short passage, let's just ask two interpretation questions. First, many modern biblical scholars and archaeologists, they scoff at the idea of the Israelite population being so large at the time of the Exodus. They suggest that number 600,000 is an exaggeration, an exaggeration meant to glorify God and emphasize the growth of Israel. Or, other possibility, they suggest that we should infer some kind of copyist error with this number. 600,000 really shouldn't be 600,000. It should be more like 60,000 or 6,000 even. Now, these suggestions, they are born out of the belief that a horde of people numbering two million is simply too large to be accepted. They claim there's no archaeological evidence of such a large group living in or leaving Egypt all at one time. And two million people, they say, cannot reasonably be expected to travel successfully through wilderness and desert on the way to Canaan. Considering such objections... And considering what we've observed in the passage, how should we interpret the number 600,000? <laughs> There's no reason to depart 600,000. We take the text straight up. It is 600,000 men and by inference, one and a half to two million people. There are several good explanations as to why archaeological evidence might be lacking or supposedly lacking for such a large number of people. And one would be, and this is something we've seen in the DVD patterns of evidence, Exodus, 
One would be that people are looking for archaeological evidence in the wrong time period because they date the Exodus much later than what the Bible actually indicates. But there are no clues in the text that indicate to us that 600,000 is an exaggeration or symbolic or in error. Besides, and this always gets me, because some even evangelical scholars will say that exaggeration can glorify God. But how is that possible? If you have to balloon the number of the people of God to emphasize the growth, well, aren't you actually exposing the shortcomings of God? You say, oh, look at all these people. Actually, it wasn't all these people. Doesn't that shame God? He couldn't produce such a great amount of people. And yet, this is offered as an explanation by serious scholars. But really, the the heart of the issue is the questioning this number is all about that, that term reasonable. Is it reasonable? Because we must remember that reason always rests on a foundation. It doesn't exist by itself. Biblical Christians, true Christians, they are to start with the Bible to determine what is reasonable. Reason needs a foundation, and the Bible is the only appropriate foundation. Unbelievers and Christians influenced by unbelieving thinking, their reason is resting on something else. It it rests on the foundation of man's wisdom. And man's wisdom does not find the Bible acceptable. Truly, there's nothing unreasonable about 600,000 men or 2 million people leaving Egypt in the Exodus. That is what the Bible says. And the Bible, because it is God's word, is trustworthy. Man's wisdom, man's ideas, they're not trustworthy. In fact, they are in rebellion against God and his word. Our reason needs to have the proper foundation. So we can take 600,000 in the normal sense. We're not being naive to do so. But it's eminently reasonable. In light of this fact and in light of the other things we've observed in the passage, what do these Four or five verses emphasize to us about God. Exactly, right? Keeps his promises. He is a faithful God. He is a covenant-keeping God. What else do we see? Say that again. That's right. He has blessed Israel. He is a blessing kind of God. He is generous. He is good. He he loves to lavish blessing on those to whom he's chosen to show love. We see that here. What else? Right. That's another good point. Um, Thanks for mentioning that, Mark. This is not strictly for Israel. We're already seeing one of the themes that we'll see throughout the scriptures, which is God always has the nations in mind. Israel is to be a catalyst to that. And specifically in the Old Testament, Israel is to be drawing the nations after God. And we can see that being accomplished in us in a small way. Israel will never totally fulfill that. They will one day. And that's why God's going to return and cause Israel to repent. But we see that happening in a small way here. Roy, is that a hand in the back?
this, right? That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, you're mentioning Rahab and her connection even into the genealogy of David and the genealogy of Christ. God was not saying, all right, forget Gentiles. I'm just about the Jews for a long time. No, it's always been, he's always had all the families of the earth in mind. And we can see that even with specific people in the Old Testament. But he had a certain means that he was going to use, and it would be Israel. As we move through the Old Testament, they were to be the light to the nations to draw people to God. And uh, they will again serve that function one day. So we certainly see God's faithfulness, his generosity, his, his um, desire to bless and even save Gentiles. We see his goodness. We see his power. And all of these are meant to be understood. The Exodus, one of its chief purposes is to show us God, reveal to us God. And we're seeing that. And it is a wonderful Wonderful outcome. God has brought the people out of Egypt. He's showing forth his glory, but he's not done. And he never is done. God's glory always needs to be revealed and enjoyed. And now the Israelites coming out of Egypt, they may have expected everything is just going to be roses and cotton candy going on. But God has something special in mind now that Israel is actually leaving Egypt. Another glorious event. And for this, please Move forward to Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17. Exodus 13, verse 17, and we're going to read the whole account of what God does at the sea. Now, this is a large section. Please focus. Please follow along with me as I read Exodus 13, verse 17, down to chapter 14, verse 31. Here's what it says. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihaharoth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal's Aphon, opposite, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. 
and the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea, beside Pihaharoth, in front of Baal Zaphon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. And they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Yahweh will fight for you while you keep silent. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood, before, stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit. And all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, Yahweh looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army, that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh. And they believed in Yahweh and in his servant, Moses. 
and just an amazing, amazing record. Let's start our analysis of it with observations. The Israelites leave Egypt and they make sure to grab Joseph's bones as, as he had commanded them to do many years before. And they're following God's direction as they travel. Notice in Exodus 13:21, Yahweh appears in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he's leading Israel while they travel. In verse 22, it actually says that the cloud never leaves Israel, but is always there to guide and reside with them. And if you look down at verse 19 of chapter 14, it also mentions the angel of God is leading Israel. Now, in which direction do Yahweh and Israel go? Now, as we noticed before, it appears to be a southeast direction from Goshen. But the other place names given to us in the passage, they're somewhat obscure as to where they are. There are lots of different suggestions as to where these places are, but we can only really get a good idea of where Etham and Baal Zaphon and these other places are if we can identify the sea at which this great miracle takes place. And that's kind of a difficult question. We're going to come back to that in the interpretation step. Where is this sea? One thing we can say, though, according to chapter 13, verse 17, is that God does not lead Israel by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though that route is near. Now, where is that? Actually, before I say that, the reason given in the text as to why God doesn't do that is he says, otherwise they will see war and that will cause them to want to turn back. God wants to spare them from that temptation. Now, where is the land of the Philistines? Good, along the coast. If you think of modern geography today, we're talking about the Gaza Strip, that, that section of coast between Israel and Egypt. That's where we find the Philistines throughout the biblical record. And that's right next to the Mediterranean Sea. Really, the route that would be the way of the land of the Philistines is that route that we've referred to before as the Via Maris, a main trade route that connects Egypt and Canaan. It was the quickest route to get to Canaan, but it was also the most fortified route. There were a number of Egyptian fortresses along that route, along with some Canaanite strongholds. So you would see a lot of warfare if you went that way, if you're Israel. It would be right into war and a constant war. And God, in his wisdom, he determined that's not good for Israel right now. It takes them a different and a longer direction. Now, as God leads the, Israel, leads the people of Israel this other direction, he has them turn back at one point and camp by a sea. And our, our text says in uh, chapter 13 that this is the Red Sea. And notice what this action of turning back causes Pharaoh to believe. God says this is what's going to happen. In 14.3, he says Pharaoh is going to believe that the Israelites are lost and blocked in by the desert. Now, you know, Israel confronted this wilderness. They're like, oh, I don't want to go that way. And so they turn around and Pharaoh says, aha, they really don't know what they're doing. In verse 5, God says further, when Pharaoh hears of this news, he and his servants have a change of heart. And it's Yahweh actually hardening their hearts. Then Pharaoh and his servants, his army, will come after Israel. And they're coming again to kill Israel and to enslave them again. Now, God ordains that these changes would happen in Egypt. And he tells Moses why. In verse 4, chapter 14, he says, I will be honored 
in the actions that are about to take place. I will be honored in deliverance and I'll be honored in judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And he says that again later in the passage. And notice who is actually coming after them. Verses six to seven, it says Pharaoh goes after him, after them with his 600 select chariots and many other chariots and horsemen. Now, do you know, verse six says that Pharaoh himself got in a chariot. He's leading this army. He's one of the chariot, chariot riders. And remember, the chariots are very feared war machines at this time. In fact, if you keep reading through the Old Testament, you'll notice that when the Hebrews are confronting chariots in battle, they usually don't want to go into battle because chariots are scary. Egyptian chariots have apparently functioned as mobile archery platforms. Basically, it had stocks of arrows on these chariots, and they could get close to the enemy to shoot precisely at targets, but then they'd flee before any foot soldiers could get near those chariots. So they're kind of like a hit and run mechanism. They chip away at the army that they face until the army breaks due to demoralization. So they were a very serious weapon in ancient times. And we've got 600 select chariots and, and more and horsemen. Now, verse 8 to chapter 14 says Israel left Egypt boldly. When they see Pharaoh's army coming, well, things change. Hebrews are not reacting with boldness and courage, but they are terrorized. And they come and complain against Moses in a desperate state. Now, this is not, you'll get the sense of complaining here, like, oh, you know, Moses, this is really annoying. These people are afraid for their lives. They believe that they're about to die, and they're going to blame Moses for it. But how does Moses react? Chapter 14, verses 13 to 14, Moses exhorts the people to trust in God. Wait on God's deliverance. He says, Yahweh will fight for you. Yes, they've got these war machines, but we have a greater warrior than they do. Yahweh will fight for you. But how will Yahweh fight? He will use the sea. Notice how Yahweh parts the sea for Israel in chapter 14, verse 21. Moses lifts up his staff and he stretches his hand over the sea. Then God uses a powerful wind, a powerful east wind to divide the waters all night while the people of Israel walk across on dry ground, and there's a wall of water on both sides, on the left and on the right. Now, just to check your understanding, do wind and water normally respond to the hand or the staff of a man? No, they don't. Can wind normally cause water to stand up continually in a wall on the left and the right, as the text indicates? No, that doesn't happen either. Does wind normally cause a sea floor to become instantly dry, dry ground? No, again, this is not normal. This is what the text has happened. Now, certainly it will take time for the two main Israelites to cross this channel of salvation. Though I doubt any of the Israelites would be dawdling. I mean, would you linger if you had a wall of water on two sides of you and Egyptians behind you? I'd be moving fast across that little channel. Still, notice how God prevents the Egyptians from attacking the Israelites while they cross. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 14, it says, The angel of God and the pillar of cloud, they move and they come behind Israel and they stand between Israel and Egypt. Now, verse 20 mentions that the cloud has darkness and a light perhaps indicating that the cloud was darkness for the Egyptians, but light for the people of Israel. 
or it could be that it was just dark during the day and light at night. But either way, this, this cloud and this fire is preventing the Egyptians from going after Israel. By the way, do you notice that the sea crossing is happening at night? It's important that we have the light of God's pillar lighting the way for Israel as they cross over the sea. Now, you might think, we might think, that such a supernatural display, clearly supernatural display, would have caused the Egyptians to give up. I mean, if you confronted a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, I don't know, do you want to keep pursuing? But their hearts were hard. And so when they have the chance, they go after Israel again. In verses 22 to 24, it says, Toward morning, when Israel had finished crossing, God removes himself as a barrier between Egypt and Israel. God allows the Egyptians to advance after the Hebrews have crossed, and they do so. However, during the morning watch, which would have been between 2 and 6 a.m., we're getting close to daybreak, God does something that convinces the Egyptians to turn back and flee. If you look at chapter 14, verse 25, it says, God caused their chariot wheels to swerve and the chariots to drive with difficulty. This is divine sabotage. What good are war machines when God causes them not to work? This would be like today if a nation were rolling out tanks and planes and missiles and they're all there proceeding into battle and then suddenly all the engines just sputter and die. At this, at this sabotage, this divine, this divine um, tinkering with the, the Egyptian war machine, the Egyptians realize that God is fighting against them and they turn to flee out of the waters. But notice verses 26 to 27 in chapter 14, it's too late. God commands Moses to lift his hand over the seas to again bring the waters back into place. That must have been a sobering moment for Moses because he realized as he moves his hand, that water is going to come down on all the Egyptians. And it does. The water falls on the fleeing Egyptians. And how many of Pharaoh's army survives? Verse 28 says not even one. In fact, notice the series of contrasts presented in verses 28 to 30. Israel walks through on dry land, but God brought the waters upon the Egyptians. The Hebrews were saved, but the Egyptian dead washed up on the seashore. And a threefold result occurs in verse 31. After Israel sees Yahweh's great power, it says the people feared Yahweh. They believed in Yahweh. They believed in Yahweh's servant, Moses. Just amazing, amazing record, but we need to ask some questions about it, some interpretation questions. First, who is the angel of God in Exodus 14, 19? I believe this is God the Son. And certainly we can say that this is God, both the angel of God and the angel of Yahweh, and we've seen this already in our lessons before this, they are shown to be God in, in the other contexts. For example, in um, Exodus 3, we saw the angel of Yahweh appear in the burning bush, and yet it was referred to as God. Also in Genesis 31, when Jacob is traveling, he encounters what's said to be the angel of God. and Oh, actually, that's where Jacob is uh, with Laban. And the angel says to him, I have seen that all that Laban is doing to you, and I'm going to do this. That's God speaking. So here is 
the angel of God is God. And we can see there's actually a detail in the passage that confirms that the angel of God is Yahweh. Because notice, when the angel of Yahweh or the angel of God moves behind the people of Israel, what else moves? The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, which is, we we're already told earlier in the text, that is God's presence. God is in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. So when the angel of God moves, the pillar moves. It's because the angel, the messenger of God, the messenger of Yahweh is Yahweh. Now, I do believe we are right to say that this is also, more specifically, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And remember why we infer this? This is because the son, as indicated by the totality of scripture, he's uniquely tasked with the role of representing and explaining God to men. We see this in John 1.18 and other passages. And that's exactly what an angel does, right? An angel is a messenger, a communicator, a mediator of a certain kind. And so this angel of God is a special messenger from God. He is God himself. Now, this is not to say, however, when we talk about the role of the son as the explainer, this is not to say that the other members of the Godhead cannot be manifest in the temporal world. No, we actually do see that. Remember, Jesus' baptism, the voice of the Father comes from heaven. It's heard by the people. The Spirit descends upon the Son in the form of a dove. So the Spirit is able to be visibly um, portrayed. But again, in terms of roles, primary roles, the Son serves as the representative and mediator between God and man. He is the the one in the bosom of the Father, who reveals the Father to whomever the Father wills. By the way, this little side discussion here about the angel of God, it helps answer a certain Christmas-related question, and that is, what was the Son doing before the Incarnation? Well, the answer is, really, he was doing a lot. Of course, God is always active, but even in biblical history, God the Son, as the angel of Yahweh or the angel of God, is very involved in the lives of the patriarchs, in the lives of the nation of the people of Israel. So don't get the idea that God the Son was like some overeager junior varsity athlete just sitting on the sidelines saying, put me in, coach, just put me in. No, the Son is leading, serving, helping, protecting, even avenging Israel, as we see in our passage. And by the way, this helps to explain one of those little details in the New Testament where it says that the rock was following the people of Israel or the rock was with the people of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness and the rock was Christ. That is a theologically accurate statement. The Son of God was there. The Son of God is, in fact, leading and guiding and serving the people, even in the Old Testament. Now, another question. Does Pharaoh survive the destruction of his army? Text doesn't say Pharaoh specifically died, so did he? I think most likely, yes. Despite what we've seen in movies, there's no reason to believe that Pharaoh would, did not also perish here. God says, I will be glorified in Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Chariots and horsemen were killed and destroyed, so why should Pharaoh be any different? Kings often led their armies personally. In those days, if they went to the battle, the king went too. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. And we also noted back in Exodus 14:6, Pharaoh himself got in a chariot and was chasing after Israel. So all probability is that Pharaoh was killed along with the rest of his army. He was part of the not even one who escaped. 
Now, what is the main message or purpose of this passage? Why did God record this for us? Why did God record this for Israel? And is it not to bring about the same kind of response as we see Israel experience in this passage? When you see this mighty deliverance of God, but also this mighty judgment of God, it should cause you to fear Yahweh, to believe in Yahweh, and to trust and believe in Yahweh's chosen spokesman. And for us, that would be, by application, that would be God's faithful pastors today. For them, it was their prophet Moses. God does just what he had promised to do with Egypt. And this serves as a as a great example, a picture, both of God's saving capacity and his destroying and condemning capacity. What a terrifying picture on the one hand of the utter destruction that awaits the enemies of God, those who rebel against God. They will be destroyed just like Egypt was destroyed here. No mercy, no compassion, no one escaping. And on the other hand, what a comforting example of the complete vindication and rescue that awaits all of God's own. People of Israel walked through on dry ground. They didn't lose a person. And this was a seemingly impossible and hopeless situation that ends with an amazing provision and display of God's glory. These are examples. These are pictures of what God does and will do in general. Now we might also ask, but why didn't God have mercy on the Egyptians? I mean, they already turned around to flee. Why not just let them get away? What's the answer? Well, certainly there probably were Egyptians, um, to respond to what you just said, there probably were Egyptians that were becoming attached to the people of Yahweh. And that's why I think we had that mixed multitude. And in one of the plagues, I think it's right before the hailstorm, God warns them what's about to happen. And some of Pharaoh's servants, they bring in their livestock and, and their slaves from the field because they say, hey, hailstorm's coming. I, I fear Yahweh. I'm not going to be part of that. So it would be interesting that if there were Egyptians also that were spared during the Passover by doing the same thing that Israel was called to do. We don't hear about that specifically. Perhaps that happened. But still here in this instance at the sea, God does not spare any of the pursuing Egyptians. Why not have mercy on them? The only answer that we can give to that is that in God's wisdom and, and goodness, he said, I'm not going to do it. God, remember, is never obligated to show mercy to anyone. If we ever say, oh, well, God ought to show mercy, well, then we've destroyed the concept of mercy itself. Mercy is never deserved. That's <laughs> Mercy is not receiving something that you deserve. It's receiving kindness that you don't deserve. And God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'm not choosing to have mercy on these Egyptians. I will spare the sons of Israel. But the Egyptians, I will give them what they deserve. I will bring the judgment on them, overwhelming judgment, so that not even one escapes. And God glorifies himself in both. And that's still true. 
You say, well, why doesn't God just save the whole world? He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He will hold some accountable and will judge them based on their rebellion against him. But on others, he has mercy. And we are the recipients of that mercy, those of us who are in Christ. God was not obligated to show that mercy to any of us, but he did it because of his own goodness. One other question. Or actually two other, but this one first. Text says a wind drove back the waters. Okay, wind's a natural phenomenon. Could this splitting of the sea have been natural? Might this just be some interesting but fully natural occurrence that wasn't really a miracle? No, it couldn't be. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Exactly. Yeah, there are a number of reasons we'd say, no, this clearly was not a natural phenomenon. And one of those, as you're saying, Mark, is that, come on, the timing, this instantaneous change in the water corresponding to Moses's hands. That's incredible. Or this unique wind that creates a channel but holds back the water on both sides. It's like a tunnel. Come on, wind doesn't do that. Or wind doesn't make the ground dry instantly. The details of the passage do not support an idea that this is just some natural occurrence. And to say, oh, you know, well, it's just an exaggeration of a natural occurrence. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. Come on, don't say that you believe part of the Bible and you don't believe the rest. You either believe it or you don't. This is God's trustworthy word. And he says, no, this was not a natural thing. This was a miracle. And this was a great miracle. But where did it happen? I told you we could talk about this. Did this actually take place at the Red Sea? as we know it today, and as traditionally believed? This is actually a tricky question to answer. The name Red Sea, let's see if I can get my little pointer here. The name Red Sea refers to this little section of water, even, even going down to this area. This is the Persian Gulf area. It includes the modern day Gulf of Suez, which is this part and the Gulf of Aqaba, which is this part. They would both qualify as the Red Sea. Did this take place at the Red Sea? It does say so in our English translation in Exodus 13, 18, but actually that's not what the Hebrew says. This is, again, this is why this is a very interesting issue. The Hebrew words for Red Sea is Yamsuf, which translates to Sea of Reeds or Reed Sea. Now, it's not like English, Red Sea and Red Sea sound really similar. In Hebrew, they're, they're not similar. But the name Red Sea, it first appears in the Septuagint translation of this Old Testament passage. As you know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament made around 250 BC. And this was an important translation because most of the Jews were becoming Greek speakers and they needed the scriptures. But it's translated as Red Sea in the Septuagint. Now, why did they make that translation? We don't know. It's a mystery as to why they translated Yamsuf as Red Sea. But to add more mystery here, the New Testament writers, two New Testament writers, both refer to the Red Sea when they refer to this Old Testament event. If you look at Acts 7.36, Stephen refers to the Red Sea. And Hebrews 11.29, the writer there also refers to the Red Sea when he talks about God's deliverance. Now, we might be able to excuse these writers if it was not, in fact, the Red Sea by saying that they were simply referring to the Septuagint translation. They're saying whatever sea that the Bible was talking about 
called the Red Sea in our translation. That's what I'm talking about. And then one more little wrinkle added to this issue, and that is the topography of Eastern Egypt was apparently different in ancient times than it is today. Archaeologists and geologists have discovered evidence that the Nile Delta, and that's this triangular region at the, at the top of the Nile River, emptying into the Mediterranean. Apparently in ancient times, the Nile Delta was wider. There, were, there was an eastern branch of water to the Nile Delta that no longer exists today, maybe, maybe over here somewhere. Also, there are a number of lakes and marshes on the eastern side of Egypt, right on the border of that kingdom, that were either that are either reduced today or simply no longer exist. There are a number of lakes and marshes. In fact, ancient pharaohs apparently dug a series of canals between these bodies of water and formed something like a wall of water as Egypt's eastern boundary. And apparently this was quite visually stark. That boundary would have shown greenery on the side of Egypt, but total dusty desert and wilderness once you pass that watery barrier. But over time, the pharaohs and others, they failed to upkeep the canals. And then there were changes in the environment, changes in the human manipulation of the Nile River. And so these many of these water bodies disappeared. Now you do see, you can see in the little map here, some water bodies today, but that has a lot to do with the Suez Canal, which was constructed in modern times. It may be, however, that the Septuagint translators supplied Red Sea in translating Exodus 13:18 because they could not imagine any sea body on the eastern side of Egypt except the Red Sea because the others had disappeared. But anyways, you can see that this issue is complicated. All sorts of sites have been suggested today as for where this Red Sea crossing took place, even the Gulf of Aqaba way down here. Uh, I don't think it's very plausible because that's a huge... That's a huge section of uh, water to cross over. There are two sites I'll bring to your attention that I think are, are particularly worthy of consideration. Answers in Genesis prefers the Gulf of Suez, so a crossing around here. And the reason they suggest this is that this would be in the southeast direction, which apparently Egypt or Israel was traveling. It, this section of the sea would not be too far to cross in one night. It is an actual sea, but from what we can tell about that section of sea today, it is a relatively shallow but flat sea floor. Not shallow enough that they could wade across. It's about 40 feet deep, but it is the kind of thing that once the waters were pulled back, you could definitely cross it. One problem with this site is that in Exodus 15:22, right after Israel crosses over the sea and they're done celebrating about it, it says they entered the wilderness of Shur. And the wilderness of Shur isn't exactly on the other side of the Red Sea, or at least not, not around here. So it doesn't quite line up that way. If you have the John MacArthur Steady Bible, you'll see a note there that talks about a different site around here, a site in the Bitter Lakes region. They call this the site of the original crossing, this miraculous crossing, the Sea of Reeds, not the Red Sea. It also fits a southeast direction. It also could be crossed in one night. It would have had a relatively shallow and flat floor. And don't worry that it says sea. Sea could be a term that is used for a lake as well as a larger body of water. Answers in Genesis does not prefer this location over in the, the Bitter Lakes region because 
they say, well, we don't even know if that really was a sea back then. All right, so you say, we suggest the water was different on the eastern side of Egypt, but we don't really know that for sure. Maybe it was just a marsh. And if it was just a marsh, that is not a great miraculous crossing as described in this section of scripture. So I think both of these are worthy possibilities. I lean toward the Bitter Lakes region because of the wilderness of sure detail and because it does seem like the topography of the eastern part of Egypt was different in those days. This was a great sea or lake on the eastern side of Egypt, the Sea of Reeds, which God parted for Israel to cross. But wherever it took place, it did take place. This was, whichever sea it was, it was a site clearly displaying God's loving faithfulness to his people and his powerful vengeance against his enemies and the oppressors of his people. So what does it all mean for us? How then can we apply what we've read from the scriptures today? And you know, Bible studies never really finished until we've seen how it's supposed to work out in our lives. So by way of application, let's consider a few concepts. These are just suggested. Of course, I always encourage you to go back to this passage and think of more um, insights and applications as you read through it. But here are a few that I'm going to suggest. First, from this account, we need to see that we, we need to reason from the scriptures. You often hear people talking about faith versus reason today, but that is a false dichotomy. Reason actually needs a proper foundation, and really, our proper foundation is faith in the scriptures. It's only when we reason from the Bible that we see the world and reality clearly. When we base our reasoning on the flesh or the wisdom of the world, then we're not going to see reality clearly. And we're going to end up questioning and repudiating many parts of the Bible. And this is a constant threat and a pressure on Christians today based on the society and culture in which we live. But you need to reason from the scriptures. You should ask yourselves, is my reasoning from the scriptures? Do I think with the scriptures as my foundation? Do I have a biblical worldview? That's what is meant by the term biblical worldview. Do I have anti-biblical assumptions or do I listen to ideas that come from anti-biblical assumptions for my own thinking? If so, you need to discard them. This is part of renewing your mind and thinking according to the actual wisdom of God. This is what we're called to do according to the New Testament. Number two, fear God. Clearly, this is one of the responses you should have to this passage. There's a reason that God did these works. He says, this is so that Israel know that I am. This is so that the people will fear me. So do you? Do you fear God? Do you truly revere him? Do you live with a sincere regard for him in your life and what you think about and choices you make? Or do you test the Lord by living rebelliously and or indifferently toward him? Just not fearing God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and it is the way to life. So you must fear. You must regard with holy fear the God who is. And then number three, trust God. Trust God when a situation seems hopeless. God specifically led the people of Israel into an impossible situation in our passage so that God might accomplish a great deliverance. And God might do the same in your life. In fact, he probably will. You might, by obedience to God, be so to speak, backed up against the sea with a murderous army coming after you. 
not literally, probably not literally, but figuratively, you're going to come into those situations. So how should you respond? The same way that Moses exhorts Israel to respond. Trust God. Trust God. These obstacles that you see, they're not impossible for God to move. If you obey God, he will provide for you in one way or another. It might not be the way that you anticipated. It might involve suffering. But he will deliver. He will deliver in his perfect and right way at the right time. Wait on the Lord. Remember, God does not change. The triune God who delighted, it was his joy to protect, to lead, to avenge Israel. He's your same God if you know Jesus Christ. He will delight to protect, lead, guide, provide, and even avenge you. If you are his child, by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you have such a God. So trust him. Trust him when you say, when your eyes see or your flesh feels that this is impossible. If I follow God, there is not going to be any good outcome. Trust the Lord. He knows how to deliver, even at the last moment. Quick question or comment before we close today. Any of you have a quick question or comment? Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Hmm. Okay, good question, Mark. So you mentioned evidentiary reasoning or the evidentiary fallacy. That is, I can only believe the Bible if it's confirmed by something else outside the Bible, some other evidence. And how do we respond to that? I do think it's actually pretty simple, and that is you you believe the scriptures. You you have to recognize that this really is trustworthy above anything that are that we're able to see in the world today. May God be found true and every man a liar. Or go to that section of uh, I believe it's First Peter or no Second Peter, First Peter chapter one or Second Peter chapter one, where he's talking. Peter's talking about his experience of Christ his witness of the transfiguration. And then he says, and we have a more sure prophetic word. And the way the grammar is structured there, he's not saying, oh, now we can believe the Bible because we've got that evidence. He's saying, actually, we can believe something better than the experiential evidence that I related to you. He says the prophetic word is more sure than even an experience of the transfiguration. We have to, we have to realize that. We have to accept that. We have to, I think another part to that, Mark, is we have to recognize the importance of presuppositions. If you look at evidence or data in the world today, it doesn't tell you itself what you should think of it. It needs to be interpreted. And whatever way you interpret something is based on your assumptions. If you assume that the Bible is trustworthy, well, then evidence is a great thing. You say, oh, look, the Bible's confirmed here, it's confirmed here, it's confirmed here, it's confirmed here. But if you assume that the Bible is not trustworthy, or if you assume there's no such thing as the supernatural, well, that's going to change the way you look at all the evidence. You'd be like, well, there's, of course, of course the, the, the Bible is not trustworthy. It's because of the assumptions you made. So we have to recognize that worldview, assumptions, they're going to color the way we interpret everything. So evidence by itself is never going to be enough. And we also need to recognize 
because of how God's Spirit has made God's Word known to us, because it just so, um, I want to say obviously, and I think that is a true word, so obviously is true that we must start with the Scriptures and reason from that. That becomes the lens through which we interpret everything in the world. Steve, you had something real quick. Right. Yeah, I think that's good. Just to summarize real quick that you were saying that if you if you have to rely on evidence, you basically destroyed faith. There, there is no such thing as faith. It's not as if it's a blind faith that, that it's like, oh, well, we just believe this because, yeah, it really seems impossible, but we just believe it. No, I, there is a reality to the scriptures. You do see God in the scriptures. You do recognize Exactly as Romans 1 says, those things that you had been suppressing, the word has brought them to your attention. And by God's spirit, he's caused you to recognize that this is true. Though it's not like we're just we're all just uh, involved in a conspiracy and we're all just saying this is true just to convince ourselves. No, we recognize reality for what it is. And really, if you just compare what the Bible says to how the world actually is today, it just it explains everything. It just shows itself to be true again and again and again and again. And we could say more about this, and I saw another hand go up, but I don't want to take more time over. But that's all for this week. If you had other questions or comments, please email me. Next week's going to be a special treat because I get to be with you guys in person. So uh, uh, Em and I will be coming out to New Jersey later this week, um, part part of the holiday thing. So we'll be in church next Sunday. And um Looking forward to being with you in person. I love teaching via the live stream, but nothing like being there with you in person. So hope I'll see you back next week. And we'll talk about how Israel responds, not with ongoing faithfulness to God in light of this great deliverance, but with complaining and distrust of God. And we'll talk about how that has relevance for our lives as well. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your people. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can believe it and that it really is the light to our feet and to our path. We only see the world clearly when we reason and think according to your word. Lord, we need to let go of the that faulty, empty, broken thinking that we used to have in our flesh and that the world currently has. True wisdom is found in your word. It is not found outside of your word. <clears throat> so, God, I pray that that would be something that each one listening today at Calvary or elsewhere, Lord, that they would adopt a biblical view and that therefore they would believe your scriptures and fear you, the God who truly is. In Jesus' name, amen.